นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะบุตังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิโดยทั่วไปSo the theme for today's uh, Sunday afternoon talk is uh, the place where nothing can go, which might sound a, a little, a little bit of an esoteric title, but uh, assuming that most people who come along to these events are somewhat familiar with Buddhist teachings, then um, uh, there should be a, a sense of um, how this refers to our spiritual aspirations and the spiritual. Dimension of our lives. Well, when I, I saw the, the title on the list of suggestions, it reminded me of um, the uh, uh, way that uh, a former resident here of Amravati called uh, Sister Upala, who was a, a eight precept nun in this community for a long, long time, she used to refer to Nibbana as the place which is no place. So uh, when I, I saw that that uh, suggested title, I thought, "Oh, it rem reminded me of Sister Upala and many conversations that we had um, in the early years of, uh, of life at Amravati." So uh, uh, that might make it sound even more esoteric. You know, how can a place not be a place? <laughs> But uh, in uh, in this sense, it's a uh, you can think of. Nibbana as a uh, a dimension, or the the Buddha uses the word ayatana, uh, meaning a, a sphere of being or a, a dimension of reality. Uh, so one way of of expressing it. So uh, looking at that title and exploring this theme, I thought it'd be good to look at uh, two different qualities. First of all, at the idea of a a place. And then at the idea of things, uh, so uh, again, these might seem a, a little bit uh, uh, remote or, or not so directly related to spiritual practice, but uh, I feel they are, and this is one of the reasons why I I'd selected this as a, a useful title to explore, and why I put my name down to be offering some reflections on, on this one. So the the place which is no place, or the place where where nothing can go. Um, one of the the first teachings from the from the suttas that I think it's good to bring to mind. Uh, it's the source of one of Lumpur Sumedho's very frequent quotations, where he talks about uh, or he quotes the the Pali phrase "vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato pabang," which means. Um, 
the consciousness or the awareness uh, um, which is uh, formless, uh, which is, uh, let's say, non-manifest, uh, which is limitless and which is radiant in, in all directions. So the, the story comes from the uh, Kevada Sutta in the Long Discourses, uh, the Sutta number 11 in the Long Discourses. And it's a, it's a long kind of uh, tale, uh, an illustrative tale. And it starts off with a monk meditating uh, and this thought arises in the mind of this monk, you know, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind come to an end? Where do they cease without remainder? You know, where does, in a sense, where does the world of material form come to an end? And this question arises in his mind and he, he can't come up with a solution. He doesn't really uh, have any kind of clarity around it. And this particular person, this, uh, this monastic had some skill in meditation and was able to visit different realms of being, different ayatanas, different uh, dimensions. And so absorbing into meditation, then this monk went up into the, uh, the heavenly realms and first of all to the, the realm of the guardian deities, the, the Chattu Maharajas, the, the four guardian deities. And uh, he asked this question, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind uh, come, to, come to an end? Where is it that they cease without remainder? And they said, oh, this is, that's philosophy. You know, we're, we're, just the, we're just the security here. You know, we look after the, the planet. It's our job to be kind of protective agents, uh, protective deities. We're just the muscle here. You, know, you better ask upstairs. We don't do philosophy, roughly speaking. So it goes up to the uh, to the Tavatinsa heaven, the heaven of the thirty three deities, where uh, Indra, the the was the ruler of that particular heaven, and they say the same thing like, "Oh, this is beyond us." You know, better go, better go uh, upstairs. And so then, one by one, he goes up through the different heavenly realms, like a, sort of pursuing the chain of command, as uh, Lumpur Sumatra would describe it. Uh, up through the, the Yama Devas, the Tusita Devas, the Nimanarati Devas, the Paranimita Vasivati Devas, all the way to the, the, kind of the, the peak of the sensory heavens and then up into the Brahma world because even when he gets to the heaven of those who delight in the creations of others, the Paranimita Vasivati heaven, still they say, oh, yeah, we're just, we're just, we just do delighting in the creations of others. We don't, we don't do this kind of profound... Uh, philosophy uh, stuff that's that's beyond us. You better you know, go up to the Brahma world. So uh, interestingly enough, the realm of Mahabrahma, who's the sort of, uh, the chief deity figure in in many stories, is at the the lower echelons of the Brahma worlds. And so it's out of the the uh, many many Brahma worlds, uh, the uh, the realm of Mahabrahma is the third of of the the many. Anyway, so this this monk appears in the Brahma world, and uh, and then the uh, uh, there's a an assembly of Brahma deities there, and he asks this question: Well, where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind come to an end? Where do they cease without remainder? And they say, "Whoa, yeah, we, we don't know, but yeah, Mahabrahma Mahabrahma might manifest, and you could ask the great uh, the great deity." Uh, because this is beyond us, and if if you wait patiently, then maybe Mahabrahma will appear. And so then, and it's a kind of uh, Pali humor at this point that it moves into, because uh, finally this this light appears and Mahabrahma manifests. And then uh, the the monk asks, uh, 
yeah, excuse me, your, your, your divinity, your holiness, uh, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind fade out? Where do they cease without remainder? Where do they come to an end? And then Brahma, uh, the Brahma, Mahabrahma says, I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the almighty, the creator, the, the father and orderer of all those that are and are to be. And then, this, this is the kind of Pali humor piece of it. The monk says, <clears throat> I didn't actually ask you that. What I asked was, uh, where is it that earth, water, fire, and winds cease without remainder? Says, I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the almighty, the creator, the orderer, and master of all that are and are to be. And so this being a Buddhist story, they do this three times over. We, we generally do things three times. And after it, the, the monk has asked this question, uh, uh, th the third time, Mahabrahma, and it says it in the sutta, sort of takes him by the elbow, takes him by the arm and leads him aside and said, you're embarrassing me in front of my assembly. You know, you're making me you know, not look good. You know, I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, you're, you're putting me to shame by asking me in front of my whole team here. So it's a sort of understated uh, Pali, a wise uh, you know, um, kind of uh, humor there, a wisecrack. But uh, what he says then is very helpful. He says, well, actually, you, you know, you're a disciple of the Buddha. You're living in the same monastery as the Buddha. Why have you come all the way up here to ask me when you're living with the Buddha? And he's much more wise than I am. So please, you should go and ask the Buddha. So he, he, uh, he beams back down to his kuti, where he's sitting meditating, and uh, comes out of the meditation, goes across the monastery, and goes to, uh, to see the Buddha and asks the same question. And the Buddha said, well, rather like a, a, a land-seeking bird that's sent out from a ship um, that, uh, uh, that uh, they, would, they would keep a, a dove or a pigeon on the, on the ship and then send it out. And if it returned to the ship, then it meant they were still far away from the shore. If the bird didn't come back, then it meant that they were close to the shoreline when it was still out of sight. He said, like a land-seeking bird, you know, you have, uh, you've been searching here and there and everywhere, but you still you come back to the ship, <laughs> coming back to, to, to me to ask this question. He says, but the issue is you're asking the question in the wrong way. Because you shouldn't ask the question is, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind fade out and cease without remainder? But rather, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind can find no footing, where they, where they, where they can't find any ground, any traction, any landing place? Um, and then he says, and it's in this kind of awareness, this, uh, this is where he uses this very unusual phrase, vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato babang. And it's a rare use of the word vinyana in, in the Pali language, because vinyana usually means sense consciousness, like uh, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, uh, 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 taste or touch or feeling, uh, mind consciousness. But in this respect, it means a, a transcendent quality of awareness. So it's in this vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato babang, this this awareness, this awakened awareness, which is anidasana, which means not just uh, invisible, but, but non-manifestative, uh, which is unmanifest. It's not just formless, but it, it's, it doesn't, it's unmanifest. And uh, ananta means limitless, infinite. Sabato pabang can either mean radiant in all directions or accessible from every side. And so there it is that earth, water, fire and wind 
fire and wind can find no footing, they can find no landing place. And also long and short and coarse and fine and pure and impure, they can find no, no footing. Uh, this, is, uh, this is where uh, earth, water, fire and wind are held in check. This is where they are, um, say, uh, they are kind of, uh, they're known, they're understood, uh, but they, are, uh, they don't have a, a landing place, they, they have no ground uh, to give them substantiality. So in terms of a, uh, the place where no thing can go, <laughs> Then I would say this that one phrase that vinyanang anidasanang that the awareness which is form which is non manifest formless limit, uh, limitless and and radiant it's in this awareness that we can think of that you know the place which is no place or that that quality of the heart which doesn't give a a landing place to those dualities of long and short coarse and fine pure and impure uh, self and other and so on and so forth. Uh, another teaching from the from the suttas, which is kind of related, um, where uh, which also is about having no landing place, when the, the Buddha is giving a teaching about this kind of, of transcendent uh, awareness, awakened awareness, he uses the image of the morning sun coming through a window. He said, if you imagine you have a a, a building um, with a window facing the east, and the sun comes up in the morning. Uh, and then the sunlight comes through the window. Where would the, the su- that beam of sunlight, where would it land? And then the, the monks here he was talking to said, well, it would land on the floor. He said, well, if there's no, if there's no floor, but there's, uh, uh, if there's no floor, then where would it land? Well, if there's water, it would land on the water. Well, if there's no water, where would it land? And then the, the, the group of Sangha members that are there say, well, it wouldn't land. And the Buddha said, exactly. <laughs> This is uh, this quality of awareness, which is truly liberated. It, it has no uh, has no landing place. It's uh, it's unsupported. It it doesn't land anywhere. It uh, it's 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 unsupportive. <laughs> it doesn't uh, hold things up, and it doesn't it doesn't land anywhere. So this is called the the image of the the eastern wall. Uh, another story uh, from, that is often quoted from the, from the suttas that relates to this area is um, very similar to the, the, the question of that, the, the meditating monk going up to the heavens, is where a devata comes to the Buddha in the nighttime, a deva called Rohitasa. And uh, Rohitasa was a, a, a yogi, a meditator uh, in the previous life, in the, in the human world. And uh, he came, uh, this deva comes to the Buddha and says, you know, when I was a yogi, I had a great ability to, to walk long distances, to travel through the air. And, um, and I made this vow that I would walk until I reached the end of the, the world. And I walked and I walked and I walked across land, across the seas, across through the sky. But I, uh, I couldn't reach the end of the world and, I passed, and my body died. I passed away on the journey. So I ask you, is it possible to get to the end of the world? by walking and then the buddha uh, replies in a in a uh, very significant way he said it's impossible to reach the end of the world by walking but i tell you unless you reach the end of the world you won't reach the end of suffering you won't reach the end of, of dukkha so 
which might seem again a little bit strange. But then he goes on to explain. He said, it's in this very uh, fathom-long body, this, um, uh, with its perceptions and its thoughts, there's the, the world, the origin of the world, the cessation of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. So in that, he's comparing the, the world, loka, with, with dukkha, with unsatisfactoriness, which might seem a bit of a negative perspective on things. But um, it's, uh, in a way, is pointing to the fact that the degree to which the mind makes the world uh, substantial and external and solid and real uh, it, it, it uh, imputes a false substantiality to loka, to the world. That's the degree to which the mind is creating suffering. And, uh, and in a parallel teaching that I, I like to quote, um, uh, that is connected with this same principle, when the Buddha defines what is the world, what is loka, he said, uh, that whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world, that is what is called the world in this Dharma and discipline. And what is it whereby one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world? Uh, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. That's the means whereby uh, one is a perceiver of the world. I mean, that's, in Pali that is a loka sanyi and a conceiver of the world, loka mani. Um, so the, in the Buddha's teaching, the world is the world of our sensory experience. And so that as long as we, in a sense, believe that what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch and think is absolutely real and substantial, you know, that's the, the degree to which the mind is creating dukkha. And the degree to which the mind can see that the world is, is empty, is sunya, uh, is essentially insubstantial, uh, is not uh, a, a solid, permanent, external, uh, separate thing, independent from a, an, a separate, independent, individual uh, subject, uh, observer, then uh, the, um, uh, if that division, that duality is believed in, then that's the degree to which the mind is creating dukkha, suffering. If the mind uh, recognizes that the world is insubstantial, these are sets of impressions woven out of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and uh, it knows that the world is essentially empty, it's essentially uh, sunya, then that is the degree to which the heart is, is liberated, is, uh, is say, not limited by sense perceptions or thoughts or feelings or, or opinions and ideas and emotions. It knows the world, but it's not limited by the world. So these are a few teachings about the the the, the world and substantiality and the and the idea of of place, and another related teaching which um, uh, is found in the numerical discourses, the Book of the Fours, and it starts off with with Mara being discontented with how effective the Buddha's teaching is. He said, yeah, this, is uh, this, this monk is causing lots of trouble. All these beings are escaping from my realm. Yeah, I'm the lord of delusion, I'm the master of it. Actually, in Buddhist mythology, Mara is the, the, the ruler of that heaven of those who delight in the creations of others. He's the, the, the king of the, the highest of the sensual heavens, the Paranimita Vasavati Devas. So Mara is a bit annoyed that the Buddha is being so effective as a teacher and all these beings are escaping from his domain. So uh, he, um, uh, he 
manifests as a farmer carrying a plow. And uh, he goes up to the Buddha with his plow on his shoulder and says, yeah, I've lost a cow, I'm looking for my cow. Yeah, can, you, can you help me find my lost cow? There isn't really a, a cow, but he's just in some vain attempt as to try and distract the Buddha from his teaching. Why he would choose to manifest as a farmer with a plow on his shoulder, one doesn't know, but there, there it is in the teaching. I guess it, it happened that way. Anyhow, the Buddha said, uh, um, what do you want with a cow, evil one? I know who you are. <laughs> like, damn, been spotted again. Yeah, but the, the Mara had been recognised. And anyway, so the Buddha, having recognised its Mara disguised as a farmer, then uh, Mara says, "Well, okay, but anyway, you know, uh, okay, you've recognised who I really am, but uh, you, you, you really haven't got a hope." In, uh, in your efforts to, to teach people because the eye is mine, the ear is mine, the nose is mine, the tongue is mine, the body is mine, the mind is mine. That's my domain. You know, I, I rule the sensory world. So you, know, you really don't have a chance. And then the Buddha responds in this interesting way where he says um, in this particular teaching, that which is... Uh, that which is not the I, that which is not I consciousness, and that which is not the feeling that arises based on I consciousness, you know, uh, that is not yours, evil one. <laughs> that is not yours, Mara. The ear, the, that which is not the ear, that which is not ear consciousness, that which is not the feeling that arises uh, based on ear consciousness, you know, that's, that's not your domain. And so uh, for each of the six senses, the Buddha says, you know, that which is outside of the sense world, you're not in charge of that. <laughs> That's not your domain. That, that, that's not under the rulership of uh, your uh, qualities of, of delusion and uh, deception. So uh, again, it's, it's, uh, it takes a little bit of uh, contemplation, reflection to, to consider that. But uh, I thought it's a, it's a helpful teaching to look at. It's, uh, if you're interested, it's, I looked it up yesterday, so don't be impressed that I know the, the other references, Sutta number 19 in the Book of the Fours uh, in the, the numerical discourses. So these are some, some themes about what, what the, the place which is, how to conceive or how to, to get a feeling for the place which is no place, that which is not providing a, a landing spot or, or a, 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 a way for the senses to, to land, to be given substantiality, where dualities don't have a, uh, a value, as the Buddha said to, in the Kevada Sutta, where long and short and coarse and fine and pure and impure can find no footing, where they can't get any traction. The mind that knows, well, long and short compared to what? You know? <laughs> uh, in terms of a length of time, is a second a long time or is it a short time? Well... Yeah, if you take the second at the uh, at the uh, after the second after the Big Bang, thirteen point eight billion years ago, give or take, that a lot happened in that first second, according to the popular science books I've read. And the, the whole universe expanded to an enormous degree, uh, from from a zero point to you know, vast reaches in that first second. So a lot happened in that one second. So was it a short time or a long time? Uh, in terms of of the uh, the uh, say the, the movement of the galaxies and the the, um, the the passing of time in terms of evolution of, of planets and stars, you know, the universe having come into being, one second is a really short time. Or in giving a dhamma talk, you know, 
one second is a very, very short time compared to the whole hour of a Dhamma talk. So long and short compared to what? Many, many of Lumpur Chah's teachings, he explored that, that quality of, of scale. That uh, he, he would pick up something like uh, this uh, lid for the, for the glass and say, is this small or large? Well, if you're, an, if you're an ant, it's quite big. If you're an elephant, it's quite small. <laughs> so how big is this? Is it, is it small or large? So he, to, help, uh, to help us to, in, sen- in a sense, find that place, which is no place, that, that quality of awareness that sees that uh, self and other, here and there, long and short, coarse and fine, pure and impure, these are... Uh, these are not absolute qualities. These are, are, they are ways of describing uh, our experience and, and the, relation, the relationship between things. So then going on to thingness, the, the place where no thing can go. Uh, so th- uh, when we talk about a thing like a building uh, or a, a dhamma talk or a person, or a, 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 you know, a chair or a microphone, we, uh, in our ordinary everyday way of life, we say, you know, this is a chair. People are sitting on chairs. This is a mat. This is a cushion. This is a building. It's a convenient way of referring to the material, ob- material objects that make up our experience. You know, this is a person. Uh, this is a bottle. You know, the bottle is not the person. The person is not the bottle. It's a, it's, but uh, if the mind then takes those uh, means of description as absolute realities, then uh, we're, we're going too far. We're taking it, we're, we're, uh, say, we're assuming too much. So that the water that's in the glass was in the bottle. So if I now drink the water, what was the bottle is now partly person. So, <laughs> magic. <laughs> so the... So you look at that and think, well, that's, that's, that's a bottle. And then I take a sip. And then that which a little while ago was part of that is now part of this. So did some kind of essential personhood come to that water that's now part of my body? Did its, did its inner bottleness vanish? Where, where, did that, where did its inner bottleness go to when it left the bottle and, uh, and I drank it? So in terms of things... We, we in our ordinary everyday life and our ways of functioning and talking and the, the laws of the country that we, we follow and the, the kind of um, conventions of society, things are very meaningful. But uh, the, uh, the place where no thing can go, that quality of awareness, uh, when, where, where the world ends, because you know, that, that, I would say, in terms of the the dialogue with Rohitasa, what the Buddha was pointing to in that is that where the world ends is in this same awareness, that uh, the world, uh, you can't get to the end of the world by walking, but the end of the world is embodying that awake, aware quality where the world of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch and thought arises and ceases. The world ends, its substantiality ends in that awakened awareness. The, the mind that knows the world is empty is where the, the, the thingness, the substantiality, the solidity of the world comes to an end. Its, its empty nature is recognized. So in Pali, the, the word for a thing is sankara. 
karoti is to make or to do. Uh, sang means together. So sang, uh, sankara means that which is the that which is put together or, or compounded, made made together, put together. So that which is conditioned or compounded. So uh, sankara or sankata is the adjective uh, compounded. So that which is put together. So the word thing in English covers a lot of possibilities from a thought to a building to a universe to uh, to a teaching, a concept. Uh, so it can refer to a big range of things. <laughs> so similarly, sankara can refer to the mental world, the physical world, any compounded thing. So if we assume that things are real, then we are in that... Uh, in that attitude, in that assumption, we are overlooking the fundamental changing nature of what we call a thing. Like this building wasn't always a building. If you look at the photo archive of Amravati, <laughs> you can see the whole thing being put together. From the, the Just yesterday I was seeing a photograph of the groundbreaking ceremony of this temple. There used to be the old uh, school gymnasium from, uh, that we used as a Dhamma hall. Then that was dismantled, taken down, and then we all gathered together and did a a groundbreaking blessing ceremony for this building. And then you can see the oak frame going up and then the brick walls and the roof, and boom, here we are, Amravati Temple. But it's even though Ajahn Sumedho uh, asked for it to be built to last for a thousand years, whether it will last for a thousand years, not a sure thing, <laughs> but uh, it, it's, a, it's a temporary uh, construction. It's, it's a compounded thing. So... Uh, when we contemplate what a thing is uh, and look at the word sankara, then it, uh, it's more uh, accurate to call it an, an event. It's a, a process rather than a, a, a solid, permanent, substantial object. So to call it a building is a convenient fiction, just like calling a, the, this body and this mind a person or calling this a bottle of water. It's a, it's a convenient fiction. Probably a few chemists amongst you will know that glass is actually a, a slowly moving liquid. This is glass is not actually, quote unquote, solid, but it's a slowly moving liquid. So if you see old uh, panes of glass, like old windows, they're thicker at the bottom than they are at the top because slowly the liquid is being pulled by the force of gravity over time. So. Um, the, it's a process. <laughs> it also is, is put together and put into this form, uh, and eventually it'll it'll break at some point, and the elements will go in different ways. So that that quality of thingness to see that there aren't really any things; there are processes, and we use the convenient fictions of language to say person, building, uh, Sunday, Sunday talk. <laughs> you know, it's now. Uh, half past two, so half the talk is gone, half is still to go. It's a convenient fiction. Something could happen and suddenly the talk is finished. <laughs> there was some, uh, there's always uh, the things that can happen in life. I might suddenly black out and keel over and then that would change the event. <laughs> or one of you might black out and keel over and that would change things too. So it, it does happen. So. The, uh, what we call a thing is, uh, or, or we, we name the, the thing, uh, is, is more like a, a process or, or a, an event, 
uh, a pattern of experience rather than anything permanent, solid, uh, and absolute. The, um, uh, in, in the teachings, then, the, the, uh, one of the descriptions of Nibbana, and uh, actually so, uh, the, the book that myself and uh, uh, Lumpur Pasano put together on Nibbana, uh, Buddhist teachings on Nibbana, it'll plug our own book, The Island. So it's such a significant teaching that we actually put it on the back cover, which is, there is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of nothingness, a place of non-possession and non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay. This is why I call it Nibbana. So that, that phrase, um, a uh, place of nothingness or no-thingness, uh, a place of non-possession. The Pali word for, uh, for that, for uh, no-thingness, um, is uh, akinchanang, and non-ownership is anadanang. So it's a place of nothingness, which we might read as being a kind of nihilistic statement, but I think it's more helpful to have a little hyphen in there, a place of no-thingness, <laughs> or not-a-thingness. Uh, and that, so the, the, that great piece of Nibbāna is the result, that's the, the quality of the heart when, that, when thingness is seen through and the heart lets go of that false uh, imbuing of substantiality and solidity to people and thoughts and events and, and uh, the, the material world. When the heart recognizes that a building person, yeah, uh, talk, is, these are just convenient fictions, then there's a, 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 the beginnings of the embodiment of that quality of Nibbāna, that quality of peacefulness, uh, that ease of heart comes through seeing that empty nature of those flow of patterns of experience. So that uh, it's a place of no-thingness, a place of non-possession. And, and again, non-possession might sound like, oh, so, so I won't have anything. <laughs> But well, no, it's, just, it's recognizing that no thing can really be owned because uh, things are events, they're not substantial permanent objects. Like any of us who have uh, possessed something that we really treasured and liked and we feel a sense of loss when it's gone, you know, uh, a uh, favorite pair of shoes or your, your, your favorite pen or your your car which finally broke down and is irreparable, you had to say goodbye to, like, ah, you feel a sense of loss or diminution because you've lost your car or your partner or your pen or your, your, your favorite shoes. You've left them at a door and you don't know which door it was, but it's time to leave Amravati and have to, okay, well, I'll donate my shoes to the, the monastery because I can't find them. <laughs> They're not my shoes anymore. So that sense of ownership or non-ownership is to do with, well, no, things can't really be owned. The convention of ownership saying, you know, these are my robes, or this is my, my, my copy of the island. It's like, well, that's a convenient fiction. But when we, we consider the, these um, aspects of things, there's also another teaching to share from the suttas, uh, speaking of a, a chair being put together, um, and Mara also, <laughs> once again. So the, uh, there's a um, collection of, of uh, teachings called the, in the connected discourses called the Bhikkhuni Sangyutta. 
And it's a series of encounters where Mara comes along to try and give the nuns some particular trouble. You know, one, there's a, one after another, he goes to different members of the, the, the nuns' order and tries to interrupt their practice or confuse them or delude them. And uh, I think it's the very last one in the, in the collection where the, the Buddha comes to this nun called Vajiri. And, um, and you know, he says, what are you doing wasting your time you know, off in the woods? You know, this is completely useless. You're wasting your life. You, know, you could be getting married. You could have children. You could do something useful with your life. And, uh, <clears throat> and so Vajiri uh, then is not in the slightest bit fooled by this. But she says, you know, I know you, evil one. <laughs> And, uh, and, and in the process of Mara trying to convince her that she's wasting her time, uh, he uses the word uh, that, uh, 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 referring to her as a, a person, you know, as a, you're, you're wasting your, your human life, you're wasting your life as a, as a person. And she said, why do you call this a person? Um, you know, what, what is, what's a stupid way to talk? And then she said, just like a, the, a chariot is put together through your know, wood and metal and, and, uh, uh, and, and leather, that uh, you, you put the parts of a chariot together and you have the wheels and you have the axle and you have the footplate and the, 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 uh, the shaft and so forth. You put it all together and you say, this is a chariot. But there's no essential chariotness in the wheel, in the wood, in the, in the leather, in, in, the, in the metal. You know, there's no, there's no essential chariotness. So, you know, why do you call this a person? There's just earth, water, fire, and wind. You put it together in a certain form, and you call it person. But there's no essential, absolute person here. You know, I know you, evil one. <laughs> and so Mara, confounded as he usually is, then goes off, and uh, she's left alone. So I feel that that's a very helpful uh, way of describing things. That. Um, we take the, the, the we say like, like a car, we don't have chariots around these days, we say, this is my car, or you know, this is, my, this is uh, uh, the Amravati temple. And on one level it is, but there's no essential templeness in these, these limestone uh, tiles on the floor. There's no essential templeness in the, the oak pillars or, the, or in this microphone. You know, there's no intrinsic Amravati-ness there, it's just, a way of referring and speaking. So, uh, with all of this, then, you know, how do we, how do we practice? Uh, to a, uh, maybe we can understand or get a feeling for these principles of you know, the place where nothing can go, or the place which is no place, um, and that that is representing nibbana, the, the peace of the heart. So, how can that be uh, realized? How can that be uh, embodied? And so. In these um, Sunday talks and Dhamma talks generally, I always like to include, uh, along with sort of, uh, I, uh, explaining principles or ideas or aspects of the, the teachings, I like to try and put things into a form that we can, you know, uh, we can practice and actually bring these, these teachings to, uh, to life in our own worlds. So uh, in terms of meditation, then what kind of practice can we do? Or what's a, what's a way to uh, embody that, that uh, to, in a sense, arrive at that, uh, that place which is no place, or embody that place which is no place, the, the place where no thing can go, that vinyanang uh, anidasanang, that awakened awareness which is non-manifestative. 
Though uh, one of the, the, the helpful um, practices that people are very familiar with it, uh, is uh, vipassana meditation, insight meditation. Because in its essence, that's what uh, vipassana is to do with. It's to do with embodying that quality of awakened awareness that knows the world of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, arising, taking shape, and dissolving. And uh, in another, another teaching that the Buddha gives, when he's describing the, the sort of the core of meditation practice and the development of, of wisdom, the liberating wisdom, he says it's the, the mind that knows the origin and the, the disappearance, the arising and passing away of, of, uh, uh, of things, the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape with respect to the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. So it's that, like in one sentence, you know, that, that is the core of insight meditation. Knowing the arising, the passing away, the origin, the disappearance, uh, the gratification. So when we see something that we like or we taste a, a flavor that we like or we hear a beautiful sound that, that we like, we say, yes, the gratification. Or it can be something that we love to hate, like, oh no, that wretched machine again. Arr! That's also gratification, having a good grumble. I think in this country we can, we're, we're famous for our loving to grumble. In the British, uh, speaking as a Brit, I can, I can, I, have, I think I'm not being outrageous in saying that we're, we're very, we enjoy our, a good grumble. And uh, that, uh, that's gratifying to have a good grumble, to, to complain about things. Even though there's a negative experience, there's a certain pleasure that comes from complaining or grumbling or, or criticizing. So gratification, and the Pali word for that is asada, um, that comes with sensory impact. So it doesn't have to be pleasant to be gratifying. It can be, it can be painful too or, or neutral. But that sense of, of um, pleasure uh, that comes from naming a thing, uh, experiencing a thing, opposing a thing, having an a, a, a enemy that you, that you have, uh, you, you nurse your hatred for, that you're, you're really upset about, your kind of pet peeve. Again, that's a, an English expression, your, your pet peeve. You, you love to complain about this particular thing. It's my pet peeve. Like, you, know, you care for a pet, you look after it. You, know, you, you love your pets, but it's a peeve. It's like a, something that you, it's your pet peeve, you, a thing that you love to get annoyed about. So the gratification, the asada, comes in all flavors. <laughs> but it's a gratification. And then its partner is is Adinava. The asada is the gratification. Adinava is the liability or the downside. So if you do chase after that flavor or that sight or that sound or, or you... you you nurse, you nurse your pet peeve, <laughs> then uh, uh, you, what you're doing is that you're creating a, a, that, a division, an alienation, a separation. You're, um, you're creating suffering. So the, the downside of cherishing something, whether you love it or you hate it or you have an opinion about it, the downside is the, 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 the liability that goes along with that, that grasping. So knowing the, or, the arising, the passing away, the origin, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, the asada, and the adinava, and then the escape with respect to the six senses. So the escape or the release is, 
is um, Nisarana. Nisarana. Uh, so Sarana is a, is a refuge or a, 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 a location. Uh, Nisarana is uh, leaving that behind. So the, the, the escape, uh, the, the leaving behind. Um, so that, the, that uh, say, gesture of the heart that, uh, that knows uh, that quality of insight meditation that says, oh right, it's just a sound, it's just my pet peeve, that's all. It's just the thing that I, I, I call beautiful and good and I always, I tell myself I always want to have that around, well that's, that's good, that flavor is intrinsically good, that sound is intrinsically beautiful or, or awful. So it's the mind that knows, oh, it's just my mind saying, that's awful, that's all. It's just my mind saying, that's good, that's all. So that's the, that's the escape or the release, the nisarana. So I feel that the, the means of embodying that place which is no place, that, that ayatana, that dimension, and realizing nibbana, embodying nibbana, to, in brief, insight meditation, vipassana, is <laughs> the, uh, the direct way, that's the, the shortcut to that, uh, to that uh, embodying that. Uh, along with that, we, there's various different um, practices we can use, and um, it's because it, it's not easy to, say, embody that quality of subjectless, objectless awareness. But there's a, a knowing... That's uh, not a me knowing, but a, a knowing of, of feelings of I and me and mine arising and passing away. This is feelings and perceptions of the world, of what we see, hear, smell, taste and touch arising and passing away. So it's not easy to embody that objectless, subjectless awareness. But at least if we have a, a word for that, or a way of, of, of uh, say, inclining the, the mind towards that and seeing that as a goal. That's a, a helpful thing. And again, this is a bit of a party lesson today. <laughs> not, not, not intentionally, but it's just taking shape in this way. So there, there's a, a helpful Pali word, which, again, we have a whole chapter on it here in, the, <laughs> in this, this little book, or this chunky book. Uh, it's an unu uh, not a very uh, well-known Pali word, but it's extremely significant, which is atamayata. Uh, and it's made up of several parts, again, a bit of an etymology. A means not, tam means that, maya uh, uh, means uh, made of, and da, the end, means ness. So not made of that ness is essentially what it means. So it's the quality of wisdom that doesn't give substantiality to either the world of that or the world of this. doesn't give substantiality to the object or to the subject. Not made of that, or it could also be not made of this. <laughs> so it's a, that quality of awareness which is subjectless and objectless. And the mind is awake, but it's not a mind that is a person or belongs to a person, and, it's, and what it knows is not an external world of real things out there, but it's the field of, of perceptions and thoughts that are known within this sphere of, of awareness. So I, uh, part of the reason we put a whole chapter on that is, is I feel it's a very useful quality to get to know. Uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa was a very famous 
highly respected Dhamma teacher, meditator and philosopher in Thailand. He spent the last two years of his life, pretty much every single Dhamma talk was about Atamayata. He was trying to, so his last hurrah in his teaching career was getting this word into people's lexicon, Atamayata. So not made of thatness, <laughs> which is a bit of a clunky way of rendering it, but it's, um, it's describing, it's a way of describing that pure, the purity of wisdom that doesn't create a subject or an object, but is awake to the, the, the flow uh, of, of perception and thought and knows the empty nature of perception and thought. Uh, another of the significant encounters of the Buddha, uh, we had a few already, like with uh, the, the, the monk in the Kevada Sutta, with Rohitasa, the deva, uh, with Mara and the plow, the plow on his shoulder. So another significant encounter of the Buddha was with a, a wanderer from the, the sect of, of bark-clad wearing yogis. Uh, they, there was a, still today in India you find um, wanderers and sannyasins and they, the only thing, the robes they, they wear are made out of, of bark, tree bark, or woven together and that's their clothing. So this wanderer called Bahia belonged to the bark-wearing bark ascetic group and um, he was under the impression that he was totally enlightened. And then another deva shows up and, uh, during his meditation and uh, this deva appears before Bahir and says, well, you think you're an arahan, you think you're totally enlightened, but not only are you not enlightened, but you're not even on the path to enlightenment. So Bahir, to his credit, to his great credit, said, well, okay, um, if that's the case, you know, are there any enlightened beings in the world? And this deva, who had been apparently a relative in his previous life, said, yes, there's this great samana, uh, Gotama, who uh, lives over in Savati, and he is indeed a, a fully awakened Arahant. He's a Buddha, he's a great teacher. And Bahia, apparently, right then and there, started walking. And uh, he, uh, a, he was living on the coast uh, of India and walked all the way to Savati you know, inland, which is what now Uttar Pradesh. So a few hundred miles, started walking, and then arrived in, in Savati in the early morning. And he found the Buddha on his arms round with a, a group of the Sangha walking through the streets of Savati. So Bahia came up in front of the Buddha and said, Venerable Sir, you, know, you are the Samana Gotama and I would like to receive teachings from you. And the Buddha said, well, um, we're on our arms round at the moment, uh, Bahia. He seemed to know his name. We're on our arms round, Bahia. Uh, this is not a convenient time to talk. Um, uh, and then Bahia having walked all the way from the coast and also having a sense of urgency, he said, Venerable Sir, life is uncertain. We never know when either you or I might pass away, so please, can you give me a teaching? And again, this being a Buddhist story, they do this three times over. Yeah. And then the Buddha says, well, Bahia, if a Tathagata, an enlightened one, is pressed up to three times, and he has to give an answer. So, okay, pay attention. So then he gave this teaching, uh, and he said, uh, in the scene, there is only the scene. Like what is, uh, in the, the, the world of vision, there is only the, the scene. In the herd, in, in the realm of hearing, there's only the herd. In the, in the sensed, in the smelt, tasted, touched, there is only the, the sensed. In the cognized, in the realm of the, the uh, mental field, there's only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. 
Um, and if you recognize that in the scene there is only the scene and so forth, you will see that there is indeed no thing here, no, no substantial subject. And if you recognize there is no thing, no substantial subject, you also recognize there's no thing there, no substantial object. Again, going back to thingness, <laughs> that you'll see there is no thing absolutely there. So you'll let it go. If, if the senses are, are known in this way, uh, then there'll be letting go of subject, the letting go of object. And then he says, uh, if, you, if the things are seen in this way, then by here you will not be able to find yourself in the world of this, in the world of that, or in any place between the two. This, I tell you, is the end of suffering. And by here became an arahant right there, in, kneeling on the street in Savati. So the Buddha occasionally gave, not exactly prizes, but he, he, uh, he named people as being foremost, uh, the aga, the foremost in particular qualities. So Bahia got the, the title of the, the one who was foremost in understanding the teaching quickly. And so he became an arahant right there in that very short discourse. And he was also proved to be right because when the Buddha said so, he said, well, please can I be your disciple? And the Buddha said, well, have you got um, robes made of cloth? And have you got an arms bowl? And he didn't have a bowl to collect food in. He just collected food in his hands, apparently. And he didn't have, he only had his bark uh, tree bark clothing. So the Buddha said, "Well, find a robe and and a, and a bowl, and then we can give you the uh, upasampada, the full ordination as a bhikkhu." So then Bahia went off into Savati to try and find uh, robes and a bowl. And as he was wandering the streets of Savati, he got knocked down by a runaway cow and died in the street. So, but he, died, he passed away as an arahant. So he was right. Life is uncertain. So that. Uh, uh, when the, the, the other Sangha members told the Buddha, oh, that, you know that wanderer that you spoke to this morning, he got knocked down and passed away in the street. And the Buddha said, Bahia was, uh, was a quick learner. He didn't bother me with lots of, of doubts and difficult, <laughs> difficult problems. So he's, uh, he became one of the, the liberated ones you know, then and there as, as we spoke in the street this morning. So, so that, uh, that expression or that teaching of uh, Bahia you find it quoted in quite a number of Dhamma books, but it, again, it's very, very worthy of contemplation. And that, that um, say, it, it, uh, I would say, describes uh, again the essence of vipassana meditation: that letting go uh, or seeing the, the sense world um, that uh, as it is, just this is hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. That's it. It's not a person; doesn't belong to a person. It's not a. a it's not a, a fixed and external thing out there. It's just this, this pattern of experience. And then that then leading to a letting go of self, letting go of other, letting go of subject, letting go of object. And then the heart is, is awake to the present reality without any limitation, without any identification. As the Buddha said, then you'll not be able to find yourself in the, in the world of this, in the world of that, or any place between the two. This, and this is the end of dukkha. This is the... the quality of realization is, is fulfilled in that. And uh, so I would also mention a supportive practice that, uh, that say can be very beneficial for the um, development of insight, development of vipassana, is what is known as the practice of inner listening, the listening to what's known as the nada or the inner sound. Those of you who've uh, been on retreats with Lumpur Sumato, listened to his teachings or read his books, or uh, heard him refer to this. And I also myself, I often 
describe it as a meditation method. Um, so that if you pay attention to, the, for most people in the faculty of hearing, in the background of ordinary sounds of the world, then uh, if you listen closely, like I can hear it right now, there's a continuous inner sort of subtle sound. It rather, sounds rather like a, a um, white noise coming from a speaker when there's nobody talking. <laughs> so it's the kind of high-pitched, silvery, constant sound. And you can use that as a meditation object. And many different spiritual traditions have used that over the years and given it different names. In the Hindu tradition, it's called Brahmanada, the, the divine sound. In, uh, in the Greek world, I believe it was called the music of the spheres. Uh, in the uh, Sikh tradition, it's called uh, the yoga of inner light and sound. So it goes by different names, but uh, Lumpur Sumedho developed it as a meditation object many, many years ago and started teaching it, and I found it very, very helpful in this respect. Because the, to listen to that inner sound, it has this, also this quality of being unlocated. You can't say it's any place. Like, you know, if I'm speaking, or you can hear my voice coming from the speakers, or you can hear me talking from this spot. But this inner sound, it, it's unlocated. And it doesn't seem to begin or end, it's always present. You either pay attention to it, or you can hear it, or you, can't, or you don't. But it doesn't start and stop, and, and you, there's no you know, per, personal will can't make it kind of do anything. And that uh, also in the, the Chinese Buddhist tradition, then uh, many many years ago, uh, Lumpur Sumedho was describing this method, uh, at teaching at City of Ten Thousand Buddhas, where our, our monastic friends are, are from. And uh, one of the monks on that retreat uh, said. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho, I think you've just stumbled upon the Shurangama Samadhi that Master Wa has been trying to explain this to us for years and years and uh, none of us could quite understand exactly what the text meant. It's in the Shurangama Sutra. It says, returning the hearing to listen to the self-nature. Uh, and then returning the hearing or turning the hearing around and we would kind of scratch our heads and we couldn't quite figure out what that meant even though the Master would explain it over and over. He said, I think... You're talking about the same thing, I think. <laughs> so it was a very interesting encounter. And he said, so have you, did you study this? Have you heard of this before? He said, nope. <laughs> in terms of giving it the name, the Shurangama Samadhi, but it's in the, in the Shurangama Sutra, where these different bodhisattvas come to the Buddha and describe their method of liberation. The very last one in the list is the bodhisattva Guan Yin. And this is the method of meditation that Guan Yin Bodhisattva describes to and my friends can probably correct my memory of the sutra, but it says, returning the hearing to, the list, to, uh, to listen to the self-nature, and the self-nature realizes the true way. Something along those lines? <laughs> I've seen a few different translations in your own, in your own books. But, uh, so, um, that, and then the Buddha praises that method of Guanyin Bodhisattva as the, he said, this is the supreme, this is the quickest way to enlightenment, this is the supreme meditation method described all these different Bodhisattvas. So just to boost the Nadi Yoga, <laughs> and uh, personally I found it extremely helpful, but as, a, as an aid and support to insight meditation and to help uh, embody that, that uh, the place where no thing can go or the, the place which is no place, then this uh, learning to listen to the inner sound that can evoke that same quality, support that same quality of subjectless, objectless awareness. It, it is a sense object. Some, some traditions boost it to be some kind of major spiritual achievement. Like if you can hear that sound, it means you're a sotapanna. 
or that you've... Uh, I've actually seen workshops advertised for large amounts of money for a weekend, whereby this is taught as a meditation method, and, and it's said, you know, you will realize enlightenment over this weekend, and calling the ability to listen to the inner sound enlightenment. So I would say that's inappropriate advertising, I would say. <laughs> Spurious... Uh, it, it's, a, it's a sense object. It's not intrinsically liberating, but it's a skillful means that can support the process of, uh, of liberation. And that, uh, that um, when that is, is used to, to help uh, establish the, the heart in that awakened awareness that is subjectless, objectless, and, and not giving a landing place to the, the world of senses and thoughts and opinions, then that's where we find that quality of the unshakable heart. The, uh, like the, the Buddha said, um, you know, uh, the sage at peace is not agitated. They're not born into things. They're, they're not born. They don't die. They, they don't uh, attach to the, the, the cycles of arising and passing away. The heart is, is awake to the way things are. Therefore, the sage at peace is not agitated. They are, uh, they are not entangled. They are not, uh, not limited. They're not... A tied, the heart is not tied to the realm of birth and death. It is, it's, uh, ident uh, is awake to the timeless, unborn, unoriginated, uncreated. So uh, speaking of timelessness, time has come by to just after three o'clock, so I'll pause things there and offer these thoughts for consideration this afternoon. We'll now have a tea break. Uh, and so anyone who'd like some refreshments, hopefully, mag magically, they will ma have manifested. Speaking of non-manifestative and the manifest, hopefully the tea will have manifested out in the cloister. So please help yourself to some refreshments and then we'll gather back in about 20 minutes for a time for Dhamma discussion and questions and responses. And please don't come up with your questions now in the break. Keep them for when everyone's together. Please feel free to ask your questions and, and do try to keep somewhere reasonably close to the theme for the, of the, uh, the afternoon's teaching. Sometimes people say, oh, I've been longing to ask this question for ages and it's offered a bit of a tangent, might be a very worthwhile question, but not quite relating to the theme for the day. So particularly if uh, your questions relate to uh, today's theme, this kind of area, then... Uh, that's, a, that's helpful for the uh, uh, for everyone. So please do feel most welcome to ask any questions that come to mind. You slide the little switch upwards. Hi, Bante. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, can you share any connection or thoughts with Naroda Samapati and with what you are sharing? Uh, I can do. Please uh, take a seat. <laughs> so Naroda Samapati um, is a, a state of extremely refined concentration. It literally means the cessation of perception and feeling. So it's... Um, known as the ninth jhana. So in terms of the states of meditative concentration, the first four levels, first, second, third, fourth jhana, um, are already very uh, very refined. So those are the, 
the states of concentration based on an object or based on form. And then the next four levels are um, uh, uh, successively more and more refined. They're called the arupa jhanas. So they are states of concentration that are uh, not based upon an object. They're formless states. And so that uh, the, uh, the mind is extremely quiet, extremely bright, extremely still. And uh, the perception of the, the, the body is, uh, as I understand it from the description in the teachings, is, is uh, essentially uh, say, uh, disappears within that, that level of concentration. And that uh, the state of Nirodha Samapati is like the ninth jhana, and it's only, so it's even more refined than those those four formless Brahma, uh, so formless jhana states. And it's only a state that can be realized by anagamis or arahants. So it's extremely refined. I've never experienced it myself. I wouldn't make any claim to. And um, so if someone has absorbed their mind into Nirodha Samapati, then from the outside they seem to be completely... Um, unreceptive to any kind of sound or activity or feeling, their mind is is so absorbed, so so quiet, so dissociated from the bodily feeling. So I would say that's very different from what I'm describing, <laughs> because uh, this quality of a tamayata, um, there's still the full range of sensory experience, but it's the attitude towards that experience is very very different. So whereas nirodha samapati is a state of concentration, a tamayata is a, a quality of attitude or a quality of wisdom. So it doesn't depend on that kind of super uh, refined absorption. So I can't speak about um, Nirodha Samapati from direct experience, but from my understanding of um, the uh, the descriptions in the, in the scriptures or, or people who have uh, either experienced that themselves or met others, and that's my understanding of it. Even the arupa jhanas, um, which they, uh, are, um, they're the kind of state whereby you can go into samadhi for days upon days, and uh, the um, so that uh, you know you uh, someone who's endeavouring to to use uh, develop that kind of meditation. They can say, I'll go into this state for a day or a day and a night or two days or a week or, or two weeks. And they'll absorb their mind into that state and then they can uh, set, in, set in mind the time for coming out of it. And apparently uh, Deepama, who was a very highly respected uh, um, meditator, um, she was, uh, uh, lived in uh, a small apartment in Calcutta in a very busy city, but had extraordinary powers of concentration. Apparently, uh, according to the stories I heard, she wanted to experiment one time and thought, well, it's it said that you can set in, in mind the, the exact length of time that you want to be in absorption. So she said, okay, let's say 50 hours and 48 minutes. And she sort of sat down with the clock in front of her and, okay, you know, today's Tuesday, so this will be like Thursday, you know, and uh, so many minutes later. And so then she put her mind into this state of profound concentration. And then she came out of it. She looked at the clock and thought, 
looked at, you know, saw the calendar and thought, okay, it worked. <laughs> so uh, this quality of atamayata and that the kind of wisdom faculty or faculty of awareness, it's uh, the kind of uh, clarity of awareness that's not based on one-pointed concentration. So that's how I would describe it. Please, any other questions? You slide the little switch up, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm further interested if we've got uh, sort of practical tips for our meditation that come out of this learning. So um, my question is sometimes it's suggested to meditate on certain objects to counteract certain mental defilements maybe. Um, but also does it help to, if you've got something that's come up that's bothering you, is it actually um, useful or practical to actually meditate on that but seeing it kind of in its true nature mm. and its impermanent um, state? Yeah, good, very good question. Um, yeah, the general guidance that Ajahn Chah would give is that if something comes up in meditation three times over, that uh, if something pops into your mind and then you let go of it and then it comes back uh, three times, then rather than trying to put it aside, then go to that object. And so that, uh, okay, this has got some momentum behind it, it's got some strength, okay, let's, let's make that the object. And, and so just, just as you're describing then to, to look at the impermanent nature of it or to inquire into it and say, well, why, you know, why is this such an issue or why is this something that's so appealing or so worrying or so irritating or why, why is my mind giving this value? So you're using the reflective faculty of the mind to explore that and say, well, uh, not just to create more mentation around it, but in a sense, uh, unpacking what, uh, what's there. Like what's, what, what's bringing this to mind? Well, it's because it's, it's, a, it's a big project and it's got your name on it. <laughs> so, a lot of people have got expectations. And think, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. So it's natural that I would be thinking about that because it's something that involves other people and I'm responsible. Okay. Or it might be the opposite. It might be, yeah, why am I, why am I excited about this? It's got nothing to do with me at all, really. Ah, look at that. Somehow my mind's picked this up and made it really important whether this person wins the tennis game or not. I don't even like tennis. Why am I so interested? You know, like, so that uh, you know, the mind can easily pick up random things or trying to remember the name of a certain actor in a movie, like, what was her name? And you kind of become obsessed. Like the whole meditation is taken up with trying to remember somebody's name. It's like, I really don't care, but somehow my mind is making a thing out of this. Yeah. So um, as the use of, uh, of reflective wisdom can be you know, helpful in supporting that quality of concentration. And also... Think, well, whether I've got an answer for this or not, whether I can see where it's coming from or not, is it changing? Was there a time when I wasn't thinking of this? Yes. 
Uh, are there gaps between my thoughts about it? Yes, okay, so it's a changing thing. So, well, whether it's meaningful or not meaningful, it's anicca. And so that you're, again, using those ways of strengthening the wisdom faculty in relationship to that. And also, when, when, you, when something is coming to mind over and over, uh, just to underscore that, it's by no means always the case that it's clear why that's got some value. Uh, they, I don't know, this is, um, I'm really worried about this, but I don't know why. Okay? So, rather than trying to think, yourself, think your way to a solution or a reason, to simply name that as uh, unknown. Right now it's mysterious, that's all. You don't, life is not incomplete if you haven't figured out that specific puzzle. And so just to park that and think, well, I don't know why my mind does this or gets excited by this or irritated by that. Okay, that's, that's how it works. And sometimes it can be years and years that it's like, yeah, where does that come from? <laughs> and that's fine. You know, just uh, being patient with that. You know you're interested. You know you'd, it'd be helpful to have a, a solution. Um, and so just not feeling that... Because oftentimes, if you try and think your way to a solution, it's, it's, it's incomplete and imperfect and doesn't really, um, doesn't really you know, answer things in a complete way. And sometimes what happens is that... Um, like, like the Buddha saying to that, the, the monk who was uh, trying to figure out where earth, water, fire and wind come to an end, uh, we realize, oh, I was asking the wrong question. Oh, look at that. <laughs> I didn't realize the way I was asking myself the question presumed uh, a reality that doesn't really exist. Aha. So, that, you know, sometimes that's, it reshapes itself in that way. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, please. You were talking about, uh, uh, I'm still forming my question, um, like uh, the five, uh, five senses, like we, we, we believe, like we have the belief that it's ours, it's my, me, my, and myself. And sometimes I have the, I do the, uh, I make the question like, uh, intellectually, I, I understand. Okay, that is not me. Uh, the, the five senses, and then I get like a kind of like a panic and shock if I like ask the question properly within myself. Then once the panic is over, if there's no thoughts, I I kind of like kind of like intellectually things like okay, they are still mine. I can hang on to the mine. <laughs> it's like uh, my question is like. What to do when you internally get this panic situation, like when you realize, okay, like, like I get this panic, like if there's like these senses, I don't know it, but there's a panic. And then, and then afterwards, I just go and hang on to, okay, there's this mind, I can get comfort in that one. So I'm, I'm not sure whether you understood my question, but. Well, one thing that would be helpful to clarify, so when you say panic, is that a panic because of having let go of something? That is a sort of panicking to try and hang on? Or is just 
panic because of some difficult situation in your life generally? No, no difficult situation. It's just like internal panic comes, like it's like the mind trying to hang on to something uh -huh. when you just. So the panicking it. is in relationship to oh, I don't want to let go of that. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah, it's like it's like a like a shock. Like it's like mm -hmm. you understand like okay, yeah, this is not mine. But then like there's some internal panic comes. It's nothing to do with difficult situations or anything. Mm -hmm. It's just you realize, okay, there's, when we die, we, it will be gone, all these senses. <laughs> but then when the panic is over, like, I try to like, grab onto, like, okay, there's still mine, like trying to comfort myself. <laughs> all right, there's mine, you can just hang on to mine and it will go somewhere, <laughs> something like that. So, yeah, the, the question is, like, when you have kind of like this, when you do reflective thinking, like when some such like panic comes, what shall I do? Like, like do I need to like, if it's not like a meditation, if it's like daily life, like, do I have to focus on something? Like, like the question is like, it's like asking, what am I like? Mm -hmm. What to do afterwards? <laughs> well, yeah, it's a, it's a good question because the, in a way, vipassana meditation is a way of letting go of self-centered thinking and the ego really likes to be kind of in charge and it likes to feel that it's, it is some, somebody, some person and is substantial. And so it's like a, 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 a political leader who's been deposed from power, you know, a tyrant that they, the, or an ex-CEO or an ex professor or you, know, you you did have a high position and now you're retired and you just uh, you don't want to be powerless so you, you you're identified with the with the role and so um, uh, there's a few different approaches I mean one is to to it just, just in a way just as you kind of repeat the description you just gave <laughs> like look at what happens there's a letting go and then something panics, like, no, 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 it's really mine, it's really mine. Yeah. And that, just, oh, look at that. Look, what, what is it that's panicking? What is it that thinks that it can actually own anything? That it thinks it really is this, this person with these qualifications or this, these possessions or these, this reputation? And so that just naming what, what's being experienced, and that in itself, because... The, when the mind is saying, look what, what's happening, it knows it's a thing that's happening. It's a, it's a sankara, it's an event. It's not really who and what you are. So that the mind that's naming, oh, look at the panic that's going on when the mind lets go. That It's knowing that as a process. So even that, just naming uh, what's going on as you described, that's, I think, a big step in the right direction. You can't just... Oh, decide, okay, I will let go of everything and not have any kind of ego attachments because it doesn't work that way. <laughs> it's not just an idea. It's a, those kind of attachments are you know, non-conceptual, non-verbal. They're very kind of instinctual things that we're identified with. And so just uh, to the extent possible, when those that those kind of panicking feelings arises, uh, arise to, to know them and to say, how does this panicking feel? Not like you've got to get rid of it or it shouldn't be there, but you know, look at this. It's a, the mind is, is desperate to hang on to this one. Look at that. 
it's, it's really grasping at, uh, at straws and then um, and then when the, as you said when the panic is over and you want to have an excuse to get reborn into that okay now I'm choosing to buy into that again but it's like Ajahn Shah would often say you know you can't just stop an attachment by willpower um, to a degree you can but to a, to a degree you can't you can't just decide I'll never get angry again or I'll, I'll give up my greed, or I'll be completely equanimous with respect to food, or the things that I, I see, and what I call ugly or beautiful, I'll be completely uh, at peace with all things. You can't, you know, the conditioning process doesn't work that way. So what he would say is that even when you find your, yourself following that impulse to identify and to, to try and own just to, to notice okay I'm now claiming this as me and mine let's see how that works <laughs> so you're, you you can't stop the habit just by an act of will or by decision but you can at least notice like oh here I go again I said I wasn't going to do this again and now I'm doing it again I think I know where this is going to go and then, oh yeah here we are <laughs> this miserable fragmented uh, regretful feeling right this is the adinava there was the gratification of following that identification of grasping that trying to own that and be that that's the asada the gratification and then here's the the adinava here's the regret the feeling of 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 uh, of, of of loss of um of the 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 payment that is due <laughs> on account of having followed that here's the liability this is how it works here's the gratification here's the danger that they work together so just again using reflective wisdom to to see how the process works even when it, it's it's impossible to let go just to at least know the feeling of grasping and to uh, like if you're addicted to something like you know sugar or tobacco or caffeine or success you know whatever it might be that just say you can't give up your that addiction but you can know the the cravings that go along with that and what the uh, what the feelings are and then that quality of knowing and appreciating at a certain point it's not even it's not so much renunciation but nikama is where things just fall away on their own the heart just becomes i'm just so tired of <laughs> doing this again and it you know kind of you grow up out of it the heart lets go because it's like the when the autumn comes the leaves turn and they fall off the tree the the tree is not renouncing its leaves it's just the season changed and off they drop so that it's a what we call letting go or renunciation it's there's no sense of loss in that it's just that it falls away but Patient endurance is the key element for much of it. So I'm not sure if that's helpful. But yes, please, if you can use the microphone. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, 
I was wondering whether you could maybe offer some reflections on the connection between Nibbana and compassion. Um, because at least when I first heard similes like um, in the scene, there's only the scene, um, you could think of, oh, I, I'm, I'm just getting the visual impression of a person suffering, why bother? <laughs> uh, but then again, you see all those amazingly compassionate and friendly people around, and you, you notice, oh, actually, when I'm, when I'm in, a, in a nice, peaceful state, it actually has kind of this quality of, of kindness to mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But then again, it's called emptiness. Maybe you could offer some reflections on that topic. Sure, yeah, very good question. Yeah. The um, uh, the Buddha was not just extraordinarily wise and and detached, but also he gave uh, from the time of his enlightenment, after the uh, appeal by the Brahma deity Sahampati for him to start teaching from that time, then he taught sort of incessantly until the Parinibbana, uh, forty five years later, so that. He, he was, uh, there's a, uh, that letting go of the world, his partner is a, a complete attunement to the world. And so the, the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and, and serenity, they are the emotions of the enlightened. So that's the natural responsivity of the heart. So it's not giving the sense world a false solidity. But this body, this mind, is part of that sense world. This being is part of the world. And so the feelings that arise in the heart, in the, in the face of the success of another, are mudita. The feelings that arise in the face of the suffering of another is karuna, compassion. So that, uh, that there's a, a way sometimes people read wisdom or non-attachment as a kind of like turning yourself into a video camera. You're sort of a data reception unit. And that, that, that's, that's, I would say, is a completely wrong understanding of non-attachment. Because it's, you're, you're not attaching to, a, you're not creating a false substantiality to the experiential field. But that, that is, uh, a part of that is a perfect attunement to the experiential field. So that it's, it's not, because if, if there's a kind of switching off and rejecting, then that's vibhavatana, that's like a annihilationism, that's a kind of very destructive attitude. And, and the Buddha spoke of, uh, against that kind of nihilism in his, his teachings many times. So that his readiness to, to serve and to help you know, other living beings was a natural part of, of wisdom and non-attachment, non-identification. But it's uh, he's sometimes using phrases like the one who knows or being the watcher, being the, being the, uh, the liberated awareness, it, it can be misread because it's, um, it, it's, a, uh, it's only part of the picture. And that the, one of the, the, the qualities of the Buddha is vijja-charana-sampano, which means impeccable in conduct and understanding or uh, accomplished in, in uh, awareness and in conduct. So the vijja is the awareness, 
charana is conduct. They're, they're a pair, kind of the front and the back of the hand. So there's a, a total letting go and non-identification, non, non, non-grasping of the world, but there's also its partner is a total attunement to the world. Uh, and so that it's a... Um, uh, there's a natural responsivity, and that's why also the the teachings are best given spontaneously. And the Ajahn Chah would often talk about this, and how the the, the, the completely according to the time, the place, the situation. That's what conditions uh, the 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 particular words of the teaching to arise. That, that they are a response to the particular question, or the particular mood, or the group that 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 you're you're with, and so that. Um, that uh, uh, the, the, one of the ways that I like to talk about that is uh, around the events of the enlightenment, and so that when, according to well, the stories, vary about the Buddha's enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, but uh, the majority of the stories describe how he had reached com- uh, enlightenment and had. Um, uh, say realized sort of perfect wisdom, but Mara and Mara's armies wouldn't retreat. So that he had this this sort of complete understanding, let, so let go of greed, hatred, and delusion to to an extent. So, but then Mara wouldn't retreat and was still um, saying, you know, you're how do you how dare you claim to be the the most supreme in the universe? It's me who's the uh, really, the, the 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 one who has the right to sit in the Vajra seat, the the immovable spot. Yeah, not you. You know, you're, you failed as a husband. You failed as a yogi. You know, and and uh, you, you know now you claim to be totally enlightened and the the master of all. It's ridiculous. So Mara went and said, uh, you know, "So I'm the one who, who claims mastery over the world with 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 all validity. Isn't that the case?" And then he calls his army to be his witness. And then they say, yes, indeed, your majesty, you are the, the one who claims rulership over the, the universe, over the world. And then that's when the Buddha reaches down and touches the earth, because he calls the earth to witness. So that's the most common Buddha image you find around the Buddhist world, is the Buddha reaching down with his right hand to touch the earth. So uh, it's then he calls the mother goddess, Dharani, uh, fourth, and she she rises up to the spirit of the earth, Gaia in Greek philosophy. So Dharani in uh, in Pali, Sanskrit. So he calls Dharani, uh, the earth mother, to be his witness. And she rises up and says, this is my true son, and he has done everything necessary to claim complete and perfect enlightenment, and you, Mara, are defeated. And she unwraps her hair, and this huge flood appears, and the whole army of Mara is washed away. So, symbolically, the Buddha's conquest of Mara, or the defeat of Mara, isn't achieved until he touches the earth. And I don't think that's, that's not just sort of imagery from a story but it's that yes there is this liberated wisdom that's completely uh, unlimited by the sensory world but there is this body and it eats food it breathes air it's it's held by the force of gravity it's on the earth and so um, acknowledging the conditioned and the limited he wasn't trying to find liberation through 
dismissing the conditioned realm or belittling the conditioned realm, but by acknowledging the conditioned realm and saying, yes, uh, there is the unconditioned, the unborn, the uncreated, the unformed, um, but not feeling it has to sort of identify with that and completely ignore the body. And so the whole of the, of the Vinaya discipline and the Buddha's functioning in society, speaking according to time and place to you know, farmers and, and monarchs and, and you know, wealthy uh, 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 say people from uh, the, uh, the, the cities and towns the way he met, or the whole range of society, he could meet anybody and then find words to respond to them in skillful ways. And so that's all part of that attunement to the world. And so that touching the earth, I say that's sort of the key symbol for that. The Buddha didn't just sort of, I, I spit on the conditioned realm, pah. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just the conditioned world, pah. You know, who really cares? What does that matter? It's just, it's just the conditioned world, you know. So which some spiritual teachers relate in that way, at least theoretically, even though they do like to eat and... <laughs> have a certain degree of, of, of comfort and, and uh, or different aspects of, of uh, favoring uh, certain qualities of the material world. But uh, the, the, um, the Buddha did not dismiss or, or spit on the conditioned realm or dismiss it, but rather that image of touching the earth, that the compassionate drive for teaching and uh, the, the responsivity of his life from the, that time on. Uh, following the appeal of the Brahma deity, um, Sahampati, then that was um, so the, the way that, that those qualities were fulfilled. So it's kind of interesting, mythologically, the mother, he had to call on it, the mother goddess, he had to call on the mother to... To, for Mara to be defeated, for his enlightenment to be to fulfilled. And it was the appeal of the father god, the Brahma Sahampati, who's kind of the lord of the universe, or the, or the creator deity uh, in many mythologies, that persuaded him to teach. Because prior to that, he wasn't inclined to teach. He, was, he said, uh, no one will understand this. And so even a city of 10,000 Buddhas in the northern tradition, they still have the same kind of formal appeal for a Dharma teaching. You do it more, you kind of walk all the way around the shrine three times um, uh, with a stick of incense and then kneel down. They do it far more fully than we do <laughs> over here. Uh, but that, so the Buddha needed the, the mother goddess and the father god in order to become the, the teaching Buddha. So that might sound a bit heretical, but it's, uh, in terms of the mythology, that's, it's all there. And, and those, those patterns are held in our stories in both the northern and the southern traditions. That, uh, the touching the earth, the calling of the, ma the mother goddess, and then the appeal by the Brahma, Sahampati, the, that uh, Brahma, Chaloka, Dipati, Sahampati, Katanjali, and Divarang Ayajata. So that, uh, um, and also another... Um, translation of Sahampati's name is the Lord of Speech, so that uh, it's to do with with communication as well as being the creator uh, deity for the universe. There's also the speech uh, is also the, uh, the deity in charge of the communi communication by words. Brihaspatiya, I think, 
I remember. I, I'm not remembering that correctly, but Brihas uh, something. Uh, it's in the in the name of uh, the um, the Brahma Sampati's name. So that's short thesis on how those work together. So we've got time for one more. If there is another question in the room, yeah, please. So coincidentally, the last week we've actually been on a retreat with Jinwei and Jinchuan, um, contemplating the four Brahma Viharas, and um, I've been asking a lot of questions around. Um, we actually studied Ajahn Pasano's writing on the near and far enemies of the the four hearts, and one of my questions relates to compassion, mm. and um, in. In the context of today, I feel like many people are naturally empathetic, and he talks about empathy being one of the near enemies of compassion, and it kind of weighs you down. Empathy is a near enemy of compassion. It weighs you down if you just absorb other people's suffering instead of um, being able to meet <laughs> it, I guess, with love. And I was wondering, um, are there any tools or practices in Vipassana which help you to... Um, transform that into compassion and to not be um, weighed down by meeting other people's suffering, but also not to go so far. I think I think there's this kind of sweet spot in the middle where you don't cross over and become indifferent and yes. kind of build a wall to <laughs> other people's suffering to kind of protect your own heart. Um, but at the same time, if you end up too far the other way, you're you know weighed down by the problems in the world <laughs> that you're encountering. And is there a practice or a technique in Vipassana that helps you to to be in that sweet spot in the middle where you can just hold your heart with compassion and love? Uh, yeah, well, uh, coincidentally, um, I wrote four little booklets on the Brahma Viharas. And the one on compassion talks about those kind of things, um, about um, the... Um, the kind of obsessive, uh, obsessive helping, and um, the uh, identification with uh, with the suffering of others, and uh, also the opposite, you know, numbness and so on. So uh, you can probably pick up a copy right in the lobby. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if we've got many copies left, but it, it's the title of it is uh, "Don't Push, Just Use the Weight of Your Own Body." And in terms of teachings, the, well, the, the title comes from a set of three principles that um, one of the uh, our, our friends in the in the Bay Area, one of the students of um, Payagiri, uh, he was a, um, a massage therapist and um, and, and meditation teacher uh, called Kandanya. He was uh, the, the first of the lay people in the Bay Area who asked for a Pali name, so we called him Kandanya. As the Buddha's first disciple, so his his uh, regular name was Barry Kapke, and so his his little um, institute was called Insight Bodhi Work, as in B O D H I, Insight Bodhi Work, and so um, he had these three principles that he used as a the centerpiece of his his teaching, and the three were: don't push, just use the weight of your own body. Don't diagnose, just be aware. Don't try to help, but don't turn away. 
And uh, uh, so I'd heard him speak about those a little bit, but they were articulated in detail. He, he died uh, of cancer. I was actually with him when he died in San Francisco. And uh, when we had a funeral for him at Abayagiri Monastery, then one of his former students who was living in uh, Taiwan, she couldn't uh, be present, but she sent this really, uh, really wonderful letter and talking about these three principles and how much they'd helped her. And uh, she said uh, how that when um, her, her sister was pregnant and... Uh, this was like a really big deal in the family, and so this, this woman had gone to kind of birthing classes and wanted to be a birth assistant uh, and to, to help her sister with this baby. And uh, she said that these principles really came alive when her sister was giving birth and was in labor and was just screaming and screaming and screaming. And, and uh, uh, she was just in such a, a kind of pained state. She didn't want anyone near her and they're all, you know, uh, this, this woman herself and other people there were kind of, oh my goodness, what do we do? And she suddenly remembered these principles that uh, Barry uh, uh, talked about. And she just went and sat down at the end of the bed. Didn't say anything. Just sat down on the floor at the end of the bed and just was there. And then um, so she didn't try to help, but she didn't turn away. She didn't diagnose, and, uh, but uh, she was just aware of the situation. And so uh, then after her sister gave birth and were, were the baby had been comfortably born, then her sister said to her, you don't know how helpful that was. I couldn't be, I didn't want anyone to touch me. I just was, just, everything was like electric. But, uh, uh, but it was so helpful that you were just there and you didn't try and explain anything or do anything. You, and so it made a huge difference to me. So thank you for that. And then she finished by saying, so now when I see my sister holding her, her two-year-old son who's kind of crying and won't be consoled, and she's also just holding him. She's not trying to make him all right, but she's holding him. And, and she see, I see that, uh, that uh, Kandanya's teaching is going down through one generation to another to another. It's trickling through. So in that little booklet um, called Don't Push... Uh, just use the weight of your own body, then I talk a lot about the, those kind of things, um, those principles, and also the, those extremes of either um, uh, anxious compassion, where you, you, you can't, you, you're kind of torturing yourself because you can't do enough, and also then the other extreme of numbness and just switching off and, and indifference. And that, uh, and I feel that those those three principles that uh, that Gandanya described, I think that that's really a beautiful, accurate way of of describing how you know you care, but you know, the fact that you care doesn't mean you've got to sort of start explaining things or doing something. And the very fact that the best thing to do is to just be still, <laughs> not try and fix anything or do anything, but just be be present, and that. Um, and I, I, uh, uh, I could relate to that a lot because I spent a large amount of my life um, fretting over the suffering of others and never feeling I could do enough and always being anxious and feeling responsible if other beings were suffering, it was my fault because I should be able to do more and I can't. So what those kind of principles point to is, which I would say is a kind of an empathy really, is you're empathizing with your own nature as well, which is, you know, I can lift a 50-pound rock, but I can't lift a 100-pound rock. 
if I could, I would. If I could do more to help this person, I would, but I can't, so uh, I'll do what I can, and what I can't do, I won't create suffering around. And you know, that you, you know and you trust that you care. It's not that you don't care. If there was something you could do, you'd do it, no question. But if you can't do anything, then the kindest thing to do is to not create two suffering beings when there's only one. So I will leave it there for today and offer these uh, thoughts for consideration. The theme next week is choose life, choose inconvenience, which is a bit of a play on uh, train spotting. There's a whole famous speech in the, in the book, which is a kind of strange thing for a Buddhist theme, a kind of bunch of heroin addicts in Edinburgh. But uh, choose life, choose inconvenience. So I have a few reflections on that next week if uh, you're able to come along. Go well. <laughs>